This episode of The Witch Wave has been brought to you by Tarot and Tea Ritual Boxes. Tarot and Tea has traveled through the centuries, from mountains and seas, from temples and palaces, to find its way to you. They believe the magic of tarot and tea can change life, sip by sip and card by card. It is a spell woven daily through their curated ritual tea boxes, which feature fine art and indie tarot decks and personalized readings, as well as ancient and artisanal teas and so much more. Each box is designed to provide delightful adventures, enchanted experiences, and personal evolution, and invites you to seize the magic hidden in plain sight, the present moment. And here's something special just for Witch Wave listeners. You can use offer code WITCH for 20% off anything in their shop. And that includes 20% off your first subscription box. So go to tarotandtea.com. That's tarot, T-A-R-O-T, the letter N, T-E-A dot com. And use offer code WITCH now for 20% off. You've heard me gush about Mithras candles many times before, and they love you guys so much that they're now offering free shipping if you use offer code WITCH at their website, MithrasCandle.com. You know, 2,000 years ago in labyrinthine underground temples across the Roman Empire, the first beeswax candles were burned in secret rituals to the god Mithras. Now you can experience some of this mystery for yourself with Mithras candles. They're handmade from the purest golden cappings beeswax, and with that natural, subtle honey and floral scent, Mithras candles are the perfect illumination for the mysteries of your life. So go to MithrasCandle.com, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for free shipping today. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. You know, one of the challenging things about doing a pre-recorded podcast is that circumstances can change on a dime in real time. So I'm recording these words you're hearing now before the midterm election, but this episode is going up the day after election day. So I have no idea how everybody is feeling about the results. Here's what I do know, though, that no matter the outcome, there is always hope and there is always more work to be done to fight injustice. 
I hope that in addition to honoring however it is you're feeling when you listen to this, you also remember to count your blessings and you remember that no matter if your candidates won or lost, you can commit to being a positive force for change moving forward. The other thing I do know is that this episode will be dropping during the new moon. And the new moon is honestly my favorite time to do any sort of magical work. This is the time of month when we can set new intentions and plant new seeds. What do you want to manifest? What do you want to start? What do you want to focus on in the coming weeks? A very simple but beautiful new moon ritual is to light a candle and visualize a word or a picture of something that you would like to bring into your life and into the world. As the moon grows, you'll grow this intention, lighting your candle night after night for the next two weeks until the moon is full. You might even have to replace the candle during this process. It doesn't matter. However, if you do need to extinguish the candle at any time, I have been taught not to blow out the flame, but rather to snuff it out. I have this really sweet candle snuffer with an owl on it that Matt bought for me one year, but you can use an old fireproof dish or mug depending on the shape of your candle or the vessel that it's in. Each time you relight the candle or look at the candle, speak your intention out loud if possible or silently to yourself if you prefer. But the idea here is that you are honoring the waxing moon and you're waxing or growing your personal vision along with it. When you get to the full moon in two weeks, take note of how this intention has started to manifest. And then you can do a beautiful closing ritual of gratitude for this new chapter that you've started. It's a good time in two weeks to take stock of where you started and where you ended up. And of course, oftentimes two weeks is just the beginning of starting something new. So be patient if your intention hasn't come into full fruition yet. You know, you've just gotten started, but starting is the whole point. Starting is often the hardest part. And this new moon ritual can help support you in any new chapter that you want to start. This month, my word of intention is service. How can I be of service to the vulnerable? How can I use my resources and my gifts to serve something higher than myself, bigger than just me? How can I be of service to spirit through my work? How can I better support my loved ones and people I've never met? Service is not servitude. It's not about debasing yourself. Rather, it's sharing your energy and attention with others in ways that elevate everyone. And that can come in so many different forms. Even when you're focused inwardly on yourself, on your artwork or your other projects, or even your problems, 
you can still try and align yourself with a higher intention to help others. So that's what I'm going to be working on and lighting my candle for this new moon and onward. What about you? I have another intention this month too, and that is to get out and see more art. Here in New York, there are some incredible art exhibits happening this fall. I'm pinching myself that two of my all-time favorite magically-minded artists have shows up right now. There's Hilma off Clint at the Guggenheim and Leonore Feeney at the Museum of Sex. I saw both of these shows already, and I already have to go back because reveling in that much female genius and beauty and spiritual splendor was so revitalizing for me. I hereby prescribe both of these shows to you listeners, so go in person if you can, or at least look at some of the images online. Take those art vitamins! It really makes a huge difference. And these magical art shows are not just here in New York. There's the Spellbound exhibit about witchcraft up now at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. There's a Leonora Carrington show in Mexico. And there's a new exhibition of Georgiana Houghton, Hilma Af Klint, and Emma Kunz's channeled artworks opening in Munich called World Receivers. And my guest, Frances F. Denny, has an incredible show of her photographs of modern witches that you can view online now if you aren't able to come to New York and see it in person. Though, of course, if you can do the latter, I really recommend that you do. It is such a beautiful show. I'm going to be talking to Frances about her photographs and about witches in just a few moments. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Emily writes, My brother and his fiance are getting married in November, and tragically, her only brother was killed in an accident a few years ago. As the sister of the groom, I'd like to offer a way to help the energy of the brother of the bride to be present with us at the ceremony. Do you have any suggestions for such a thing? Emily, thank you so much for this question. I am very, very sorry to hear about the loss of the brother of your sister-in-law-to-be. That is so painful, and it's lovely of you to want to help her honor his spirit somehow. Rites of passage, even happy ones like a wedding, are really powerful times of transformation. And I believe that while we take part in them, the boundary line between life and death becomes even thinner. Rituals help us to enter liminal space, that fuzzy, potent zone where we are, as the anthropologist Victor Turner wrote, betwixt and between. We transcend time, and we turn from one state of being into another. So I think 
that this brother is going to be there no matter what. But it's especially beautiful if some sort of physical marker can signify this. I can speak from a bit of experience because my grandpa Morty died six months before my wedding, and I was really close to him and felt that loss very deeply. But he made his presence known at the wedding in a number of ways, most obviously in that the seat next to my mother, who was his daughter, was spontaneously empty during the wedding ceremony. And there's no reason for it because the room was absolutely packed to the brim and people were standing up in the back. Frankly, I would love to say that we thought about doing this for him beforehand as some sort of a gesture, leaving an empty chair, but it happened anyway. No one sat in that seat. And after the ceremony, my mom realized that it was because that's where Grandpa Morty was sitting. So I love the idea of doing something like this with intention. You can do something as simple as leaving an empty chair for the brother. I was just at another wedding where the mother of the bride had recently passed, and they had a chair for her, and one of the bridesmaids left a bouquet on the chair as part of the ceremony. If something like that doesn't feel quite right, or you just simply don't have the chairs to spare, certainly a photograph of him somewhere or a candle that's lit in his name, whether during the ceremony or off to the side beforehand, can be really lovely. Or you can have one of his favorite objects be displayed in the space or worn by the bride. Just any way to physically represent him and make space for him. But here's something else to consider. The bride's link to her own brother is such a deeply personal one. And I would let her take the lead on this. If she's asking you for help or suggestions, that's great, and please feel free to convey some of these ideas. But ultimately, this is something that she needs to feel fully involved with. So if, for whatever the reason, she's resistant to doing something physically symbolic, I promise you her brother will still find a way to make himself known. Let me know how this goes. And please pass along my congratulations and love to your expanding family. Now, on to my guest. Frances F. Denny is a photographer whose work investigates feminine expression and gender. Her latest project, Major Arcana, Witches in America, is a survey of over 70 female, femme, and gender non-binary people who identify as witches. And a selection of those photographs are currently on display at Clamp Art Gallery here in New York City. Frances is the recipient of a New York Foundation for the Arts 2016 Fellowship in Photography and has won numerous awards. She is also a commercial photographer who shoots for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, and many other places, and she's one half of the visual branding boutique, Daphne. 
Francis and I spoke extensively about photography, witchery, and identity when she joined me here in my Brooklyn apartment. Francis F. Denny, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you, Pam. I'm so happy you're here. So I know you as a photographer. That's your primary function and identity in the world. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. And I know you through the context of this incredible photo project that you have called Major Arcana, which is a series of people who identify as witches throughout this country. And we're definitely going to talk all about that. But I wanted to set the stage a little bit for everybody who might not be familiar with your photography and your rather amazing career, if I may say. How did you first and foremost get started as a photographer? So I was never one of those people who was born knowing that they wanted to be an artist or knowing exactly what they wanted to do. So it took me a while to come to terms with the fact that I was meant to take pictures for a living. I went to school here in New York and had a liberal arts degree. I took a lot of photography classes. And then afterwards, I went to work in an art gallery as a receptionist and was really unhappy doing that. So I ended up quitting that job and picked up my camera again and figured out that that's what I wanted to do. So I assisted people and took classes and eventually went back to graduate school to get my MFA in photography. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. So awesome. And you photograph both on a commission basis and for your own fine artwork as well. So folks might have seen your work in I don't know, little places like the New York Times, the New Yorker, Architectural Digest, lots and lots of other places. And then you do lots of shoots for brands as well. That's right. I use my camera in such a multitude of ways. I do my own personal fine artwork. And then I also do editorial and commercial work. Yeah, it's it's definitely a mixture. And when did you decide that you wanted to do personal work in addition to commissioned work, or maybe it was the opposite. I know for a lot of us who are creative people, you know, we have to pay our bills. Mm -hmm. And so commercial work is often the way that we do that. How do you strike that balance? Do you enjoy doing both or is one kind of a necessary in order to feed the other? Yeah, I think the personal work definitely came to me first. And the editorial and commercial work is not necessarily a means to an end. Like it's not just a way to pay the bills. I love getting to work in different ways with my camera. And I think that it makes me a better photographer and a better artist to be constantly challenged in different ways by clients and photo editors. (laughs) On every assignment I go on or job I go on, I feel like I still learn something. I'm so far into this at this point, at least it feels that way, that that seems like a surprising fact in that always, always feeds into my artwork. So it also feeds different sides of my personality. Like The artwork, you know, I get quite reclusive when I'm working hard on a project. I'm alone a lot. I'm so independent. I'm traveling around by myself and I I love that. But then I also love collaboration and working with people and clients. So 
I think of you as primarily a portrait photographer. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think portraits is where I'm most comfortable, but I also really love still life. So I do still life as well. And environmental stuff. I mean, I shoot restaurants sometimes for The New Yorker. Like It kind of runs the gamut. I do a lot of different kinds, but portraiture is really my favorite. Yeah. And I know you have a lot of different styles and techniques, but I do tend to think of you as leaning a little bit more toward the naturalist side. I Mm -hmm. think of you as, if not full-on documentarian, that reportage style is definitely in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I think that's right. I can't quite claim this term because a friend of mine uses it for his work, but I sort of think of a lot of my work as like creative nonfiction. It's quote-unquote real people a lot of the times, but there's a lot of me in the pictures too. It's not straight documentary. It's definitely not photojournalism. Mm -hmm. What do you mean there's a lot of you in your photographs? Well, I think it depends on the project, but first of all, all of my projects come from such a personal place or interest or preoccupation. And even if I'm almost always taking pictures of people other than myself, that's where they start from. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's so much of me imbued in just the framework of any given project. So let's dive into those projects. I'm aware of several of your projects And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about each one, but it strikes me that a through line between them all is around gender and explorations of womanhood, femininity. So why don't we start with Let Virtue Be Your Guide? Was that kind of the first body of work that was personal that you did? Absolutely. So that is a body of work that I shot primarily when I was in graduate school up in Rhode Island. And the project is really looking at my family and the sort of deeply rooted ancestry that I have in New England specifically. Someone very fairly called me out on the fact that a lot of time when I have people of color on the show, I'll ask them about their background. But when it's a white person, I don't do that. And that was like totally right on to be called out by that. So where do your people hail from, Francis Denny? Well, uh, England originally, but when I was 14, my father compiled a document of my family's ancestry on both sides, my mother's and my father's. And on both sides, it, it goes quite far back in this country. So one of the people I discovered on my father's side was a man named John Howland, who was a deckhand aboard the Mayflower. And I did some research into that and was thinking about what it means to come from such a long line of early Americans. Of white people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the clear and distinct privilege that that entails. So I was wrestling with that and thinking about it and was interested simultaneously in, some people are really thrown by this term, but WASPs, it stands for a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Mm -hmm. and was thinking about my family is a family of wasps on both sides. Like, these are my people? Is this like what my heritage is about? And so I was thinking about is it also cultural? Is a wasp a culture? And started exploring that and trying to photograph it. And largely I photographed in homes that belong to different relations of mine and my family. 
And as I photographed and as I made my way through graduate school, I began realizing that really what I was most interested in was looking at the women in my family Mm -hmm. and how their version of femininity relates to that wasp culture, but also like how I felt about it. And so the pictures that resulted from that project, I think are my way of kind of coming to terms with or contending with that version of femininity. Mm. And did you have things that were revealed to you that were problematic or things that you had to face that you were surprised by? Absolutely. I discovered slaveholders in my family tree. Mm. Um, I also discovered philanthropists and people who had founded institutions that, you know, I'd be proud to be related to on some level. But yeah, there were some skeletons in that closet for sure. So this was a way to kind of dive into that. And then I don't mean to jump ahead, but that is also extremely related to how I began Major Arcana. Yeah. So let's dive into that. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a project that you have been doing for, is it three years? Almost three years, yeah. Okay. And as I see it, it's really like an anthropological exploration of people who identify as witches. And I'd love to hear you talk in more detail about this, but it really is this very diverse body of people who sat for you. And I would love to hear how you got from the pilgrims and <laughs> to people who identify as witches. Some might think of those as really opposite on the side of the historical spectrum. So I think the link will become clear in a moment. But essentially, the project began when I was doing that genealogical research for Let Virtue Be Your Guide and looking at that document that my father had produced, I discovered that my 10th great-grandfather was one of the central judges in the Salem witch trials and that, coincidentally, my 8th great-grandmother, her name was Mary Bliss Parsons, was an accused witch, accused of witchcraft, I should say. Mm -hmm. It was 20 years prior to the trials and in a different town, Mm -hmm. Northampton, Massachusetts. But that coincidence really struck me. And I began thinking about the power of that word witch. And I read Stacey Schiff's book, Mm -hmm. The Witches, Salem 1692. For those of you who don't know this book, Stacey Schiff is a historical biographer. Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. Yeah, highly recommend her work. And one of the things that she's great at is making things that happened a really long time ago really come alive to the imagination. So I was reading her book and reading about Salem and what it was like as a Puritan to live in that town and to live in New England. And, you know, I was thinking about my ancestors and their involvement peripherally and directly in this specific moment in history. And I felt called to dive into this archetype and this is something you talk about a lot in your work and why we've connected I think is that the witch is this really powerful archetype and the Salem trials have to do with it I think because at least in the public consciousness sort of is one of the things people think of when they think of witch and obviously the people who were accused of witchcraft in 1692 have pretty much nothing to do with the people who now identify as witches. Yeah. 
But that was a leap that I had to make in basically finding the seed of my project in Salem and in my ancestry. So essentially, I was thinking about that ancestral coincidence, mulling it over, reading about it. And then I had this thought like, aren't there people out there who identify as witches now? Mm -hmm. I had this vague sense, but like, I'm a complete outsider to the world of witchcraft. At least I was three years ago. And so I really had to start at the beginning and research and dive into learning for myself who witches are now. It's a very different thing from who was accused of witchcraft then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things I think about all the time is the ways in which the archetype of the witch has all these layers to it and facets to it. And so to your point, the idea that a Puritan would have in his or her head of what a witch is when he accuses or she accuses someone else of being a witch, that's a potent image. So even if the person who was accused weren't witches and didn't identify as witches, it still gets kind of baked into the archetype. Like you never fully let go of that even as the archetype evolves and expands. Absolutely. And it's all part of what gives it some kind of power and mystery and taboo even, I would say. Yes. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Have you visited chaseandscout.com yet? Elle creates beautiful handcrafted jewelry that brings unique spirit to your style to make you look and feel spectacular. I especially love the incorporation of natural objects from the hidden realms of lush gardens and wild forests to capture the essence of nature's dark beauty. You can order directly from Elle's One Woman Austin studio or collaborate with her on the custom jewelry design of your dreams. You can follow Elle on Instagram at Chase and Scout Jewelry for a peek into her process. And if you place an order using offer code WITCH, you'll save 20%. So go on ahead to chaseandscout.com and find a little natural magic of your own. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Francis F. Denny. So Francis, we were just scratching the surface of your project about witches in America. So you decide through a whole host of interrogations of yourself and your family that you want to start exploring what witches are in this modern era. And so how did you begin this project? Who was the first witch that you photographed? And and how did you find this person? So I would say in order to educate myself a little bit, I read Margot Adler's Drawing Down the Moon, which just really helped me sort of get the lay of the land a little bit and understand at least within the pagan community, who calls himself a witch. Mm-hmm. And and let me just say, for those of you who aren't familiar with that book, this was arguably the first full study of modern paganism and modern witchcraft. She primarily focused on America, but whenever you're studying America, you also have to study England because Wicca really started out of there by a whole number of people. But a man named Gerald Gardner, whose name has come up many 
many, many times on the podcast, was certainly a big force behind Wicca, if not the full-on inventor of it, depending on who mm-hmm. you ask and what you're reading. So Drawing Down the Moon is a great place for any of you guys to start if you want to learn your modern witchcraft history. Could not have put that better, for sure. So I think the first few portraits that I did, once I felt a little bit more confident about how I would be defining which, first I wrote a letter. And it was very carefully worded, and it explained where I was coming from and why I was doing this project and how I was sort of thinking about which as an archetype. Who was this letter for? It was for the people I was going to reach out to. Okay. It was basically how I kind of cold called witches. Yes. (laughs) And so I would sometimes read it over the phone (laughs) and email it around. And that was how I found my subjects. Can we take a step back? You know, we talked about how a lot of your projects focus on gender. And most, if not all of the witches that you photographed are female or femme. They might be trans or gender fluid. But it seems to me that there aren't people who are men in your series. And I'd love to hear about did you decide that early on that you wanted to focus on the feminine experience or as you started approaching witches, it was more female or femme people who were responding? Thank you for asking that. I decided to focus on women and people who are on the spectrum of female or who are genderqueer, trans, non-binary, and at the risk of feeling exclusionary, I did not include male witches, of which, of course, as you know, there are many. Mm -hmm. Shout out to our male witches. Shout out for sure. And I did that because I guess my preoccupations of an artist have always been more geared towards the female experience and the various definitions that we have of what it means to be a woman and living in a female body. And at the same time, I also really, it's so important to me to be open-minded and as inclusive as possible about how we define that. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely something I wanted to touch on. For sure. Okay, so you decide you're going to approach people who identify somewhere along the spectrum as feminine, Mm -hmm. let's say, and you start sending these emails around, and how did you even know who to to ask? Yeah, you know, those first early outreach emails were kind of done on a hunch. Like there was some Was this Google or was this friends of friends? people I knew. So Mm -hmm. I started with people that I knew who I thought would respond to this kind of prompt, this letter of intention, Mm -hmm. let's call it. And that's how I got maybe a sort of critical mass of about 10 people. And then once I had photographed them and interviewed them, I always start the sessions with a short interview. I would ask them to tell me who else I should speak to. So basically the the project grew from referrals and I ended up kind of constructing this big web of witches Mm -hmm. that you helped me in part build. I mean, it is a community and of Mm -hmm. course not everybody knows everybody or not everybody has the same style or orientation towards witchcraft, but usually someone who calls himself a witch, knows other people who exactly. are witches. Yeah. Yes. And I was very inclusive about the word witch. So it helped me to think about it, partly from Adler's book, Wiccans, right, are 
the sort of capital W witches. And I actually had a witch correct me when I lowercased her W. <laughs> I was so grateful that she had because, of course, Wicca is a religion. And mm-hmm. she told me, you know, we've been fighting for a long time to have that W be uppercase the way that Catholic or Jew or Muslim would. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's been helpful for me as an outsider to kind of think of Wiccans are the the kind of uppercase W witches, and I've included lots of them in the project. But I also have what I call, and I don't mean to minimize them at all, like lowercase W witches who maybe are not affiliated with a religion, maybe consider themselves pagan, maybe not, potentially have a kind of eclectic personal practice. And again, so many babies here because there are no two witches who are exactly the same in this project. But sometimes people who are totally outside of this world ask me, what do witches do? What do they believe in? And so often I'll say, well, sometimes there's an interest in tarot or astrology or healing modalities, herbalism, candles, spell work. And those things, again, not everyone practices all of them, but I find it to be like a very personal to each practice. Yes. And if I can interject for anybody who's listening, there really isn't one codification even for like spelling of things or capitalizing things. Like absolutely, I've seen lots of Wiccans who insist on their capital W, but then there's lots of other folks who... I'll use myself as an example. Being a witch for me is probably capital W in my mind, but I wouldn't necessarily capitalize it when I'm Mm -hmm. writing about myself because I don't consider myself Wiccan. And that's come up a number of times. And yet this is very much my spiritual identity and my practice, as well as a political identity and a feminist identity Mm. and, and all of these other things. So it really varies and you'll get a different answer depending on which of us you're talking to. Absolutely. To make matters even more confused. you start photographing these folks and this takes you all over the country doesn't it yeah i was lucky enough to win the support of a a nifa grant that helped me jumpstart some of the travel that was necessary for the project so i did a trip out to la to southern california i did a trip to louisiana to new orleans i did a trip to san francisco the bay area i had no idea the bay area was sort of like the hub as far as i can tell of so much pagan activity in this country and of course i traveled a lot up and down the east coast mm-hmm. we're everywhere you are yes somebody was telling me recently that ohio has the highest number of Wiccan and pagan identified people. I don't know if that's true. Do not quote me on that. But that's so interesting. So who knows? Maybe I'll have to make a trip out there. And one thing I really appreciate about your series, first of all, I love the way in which you still have that beautiful anthropological approach to it. And I remember even I was fortunate enough to get to sit for you and be photographed by you for this project. 
And I remember asking you, like, what should I wear? And you were like, whatever you want. And that was really interesting for me to be like, how do I want to be presenting myself as this witch for the purposes of one image? And, you know, as someone who's very interested in symbolism and how we signal these things, I definitely thought pretty hard about it. And yet you also have people who are wearing, like, there's one woman who's in her nurse's scrubs. And I love that photo because she doesn't look like the cliche or the stereotype of a witch. She's a working woman who happens to be a witch. That's exactly right. Debbie out in New Orleans, we were discussing what should I wear? And all my subjects basically were encouraged to dress themselves and to choose also the location of their shoot. But Debbie said she was going to be sorting out logistics and she told me she was coming from her day job. Debbie, by the way, is a Wiccan high priestess and founded her own coven in New Orleans. And her day job, as it turned out, is as a surgical tech doing organ transplants. And she said, you know, I'll be in my scrubs. And I was like... Debbie, (laughs) if you don't mind, it could be so interesting to photograph you in your scrubs because I love the idea that you could be walking past her on the street and not know that you're walking by a high priestess. Mm -hmm. And so she was totally game and I photographed her in her backyard and in her scrubs. It's one of my favorites of the whole series, especially because And we don't talk about this a lot, and I think it's important that we do. So many of us have day jobs and have many other roles and identities that we occupy in addition to being witches. And I personally know plenty of witch lawyers and witch doctors and witch teachers. You guys have heard on the podcast already, witch dominatrix and witch drag queen. And there's so many different occupations that people have. You can be anything and be a witch. So that's why I really loved that you together made that choice. Oh, good. Thank you. So I think one of the things when I set out to do the project in terms of my intention for it, one thing was stylistic. I knew I didn't want to photograph in a way that I felt like was sort of stereotypical aesthetic of witchcraft. Yeah, you didn't so, have like dry ice no, and like there were no of smoke, smoke. machines. There was, <laughs> there's not a ton of like low lighting. Almost every picture was shot with natural light. So part of my intention was, you know, stylistic and like how I wanted to go about it. Also, I wanted people to have some say in, in how they are represented. The trouble with photography and a portrait specifically is that it's a reduction. It's taking something that's living, breathing in three dimensions and reducing it to two dimensions. So I feel an enormous amount of responsibility as the reducer, as the photographer to represent my subjects. And especially in the context of the project with witches, it's easy to forget living in liberal Brooklyn in my sheltered bubble here that there are places in this country and in the world where it is definitely not okay to live as a witch publicly. It's something that you can be prosecuted for and killed over. I had one witch tell me that she had been worried about coming out of the broom closet because her ex-husband could have used it in court against her to take her kids away. Mm. So it's really... I feel an enormous amount of responsibility to my subjects and I want to, in representing them, give them as much agency as I can give them and also represent them with dignity. So that I think was 
the way I wanted to go about photographing. That's so great. I really, really love that. And it comes through your series is so beautiful and it definitely has that gravitas to it. It doesn't feel sensationalized. And I personally felt really comfortable and really respected when you approached me and by the entire experience. So while I can't speak for all, how many was it? Over 70. Wow. But I imagine most of them would say the same thing, if not all of them, because you're such a lovely person to work with. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Angela Mary Magic. Do you ever need an experienced witch to whip you up a spell? Angela Mary Magic is your safe space for confidential spellbound rites. Enter her enchanted online portal where you'll receive an enormous array of seasoned bespoke witchery. And Angela Mary is now offering her most tender and personal spell work of her life called Moon Coven. This is a year and a day of spells that Angela Mary is casting for all 13 full moons, new moons, and eight turns of the wheel from October 2018 through October 2019. And if you sign up now, she'll weave your personal intentions into the magic too. You may purchase the entire quiver of 34 spells or in an a la carte fashion, choose specific spells on certain moons or holidays for yourself or someone else as a gift. And if that's not enough, she also offers spellbinding products such as her Atmosphere Magic Mist, and she does online booking for bespoke tarot sessions through a feminist witch lens too. Follow the path to her Instagram account at Angela Mary Magic. That's magic with a CK. Lucky Witch Wave listeners receive a whopping 70% off Moon Coven. That's 70% off her Moon Coven spells utilizing offer code WITCH at checkout. Head over to AngelaMaryMagic.com for all the divine details. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with photographer Francis F. Denny. So Francis, we were talking about the ways in which you're taking photographs of these self-identifying witches. And one of the things I really appreciated too is not only the variety of economic backgrounds and occupations, but you have a variety of um, styles of witchcraft, of people who come from different religious orientations, different roots of witchcraft. You have people of every background one can imagine, sexuality, gender expression, and so on. Like It really is this great eclectic cross-section of Americans and, of course, witches as well. But if you're comfortable talking about this, I would love to bring up the fact that when one is trying to capture images of a community, sometimes the people in our photographs aren't always people that we necessarily agree with. I know you found yourself kind of accidentally wading into some controversy and some disagreements regarding who should and should not be photographed for this project. And 
I'm one to not like to stir the pot too much when it comes to all of these conversations. But let's be honest, you know, no community is a monolith and you're going to find people who disagree with each other sometimes. You're going to find some people who think certain people are more okay or more valid than others. And this happens everywhere. But certainly in the witchcraft community, one of the ugliest sides of it and one of the sides that I do not condone in any way, there is a a thread of transphobia that sometimes comes up. And there are some, usually in my experience, it's been more like old school witches, second wave feminist witches, who really cling on to this idea that like you need to have been born with a uterus or menstruating in order to identify as a witch. I do not agree with that. And yet actually two of the people I can think of that you photographed are notorious for having that kind of transphobic attitude. And I know some people were not happy that you included them in this project. And I'd love to hear your thoughts around it because I imagine as a photographer, you're not going to agree with every subject that you include in a project like this. Absolutely. Um, And this has been such a, a big issue and has been brought up, especially since some of the early press came out. So I'm eager to talk about it. So first of all, I am completely on the same page with you. I find that that transphobia personally offensive and not something I agree with or condone whatsoever. I was shocked when one of my subjects in the midst of our interview yelled at me when I mentioned that I had been a a gender and sexuality major in college and she said, you know, expletive, it's not gender studies, it's women's studies, et cetera. And, and relayed this viewpoint that I had never kind of come across before, at least on a personal level. The idea that you have to be a cisgendered woman in order to be a real witch. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I definitely wrestled with the idea of including, as you noted, the two individuals that I can think of too in the project because they had this viewpoint, which I find so morally reprehensible. However, I think my job as the photographer and the artist is to represent a community, which is not a small undertaking. And I don't think that means that I should be editing that representation based on a like sanitized viewpoint that I would like to be the case maybe, or like would want to put forth. I think I'm trying to represent a conversation that is out there right now that's happening in the witchcraft community and also the feminist discourse. Mm -hmm. And as you've noted so much in your work, there's so much overlap between the two. Mm -hmm. So I decided I'm going to keep these people in. These two people also happen to be hugely influential in the work that they've contributed to witchcraft. We were talking about this off the mic. I know, for example, like Susan B. Anthony is someone that a lot of people of color find now deplorable Mm -hmm. because she said some abhorrent things around race. I think it was black people got the vote before women. She wouldn't support it or or something to that degree. It's Mm -hmm. a horrible thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly a stance that that I do not agree with. Mm -hmm. 
And yet she also was a hugely influential suffragist who got women the right to vote. And both of these things are true. But I think we are in this time of like navigating and really reckoning with our history as definitely as Americans and and what we're going through, I think, when we're looking at the founding people of this country, the founding mothers of this country, and I would say the founding witches of the modern witchcraft movement. On the one hand, some of these women, I hate that they have these points of view. And on the other hand, they were hugely influential. And I think it's important to acknowledge both their contribution and their immense wrongheadedness. And that's my perspective. I don't know if other people disagree. That's exactly how I feel about it as well. It feels like it would be a very weird omission and erasure to not include them. And I'm so glad that I'm having the chance on this podcast because it hasn't come up in any of the interviews I've done. Let's move on to another bit of, I'm not trying to be salacious here, but another bit of contention, which is this idea that witchcraft is becoming more mainstream. Certainly, like, the media is bewitched by witchcraft right now. I feel like there's articles and I know my emails constantly being filled with people who want to talk to me about modern witchcraft. I'm sure the same is happening for you. You were fortunate enough to have your show featured in The New Yorker. And so how are you thinking about And how are your subjects thinking about the ways in which you are helping to perhaps mainstreamify modern witchcraft? So one of my my questions in these casual sort of informal interviews that I conducted before the portrait sessions, which were, by the way, just sort of a way for me to like feel people out and put them at ease a little bit, but also for me to get a sense of their identity as a witch. But one of the questions I always asked was especially with, let's say, like the old guard witches, some of the Wiccan, some of the second wave feminists. It was almost like a generational thing. But one of the questions I always had for for them was, how do you feel about the fact that you can walk into an Urban Outfitters or a Zara or whatever and get a, you know, a witch t-shirt? How do you feel about the fact that this is incredibly trendy and, and yeah, relevant to the mainstream where heretofore it was a fringe kind of countercultural phenomenon in a sense and i definitely encountered people who had some resentment over that i definitely found that i had one witch say that she felt like there was like a millennial entitlement to it to mm. thinking like oh, I I like this term, like, I'm going to call myself a witch, like, that sounds cool. And I totally get that. I totally understand that. But I, I will say, by far, it was much more common for people to react in a sense of being okay with it, actually. And maybe they were just being nice. But my sense was that they felt like anything that kind of took the taboo out of being an out witch, being out as a witch, being mm-hmm. publicly identifying as a witch was a good thing because it made it safer for them. Mm-hmm. It was almost that simple for for a bunch of them, um, including Starhawk. I remember talking to her about this and she I felt... I her so much. Yeah, she was great. I loved her book so much. Yes. So yeah, and so to, to answer your question more specifically about my project, which, yeah, you're right, probably does end up mainstreaming witchcraft more in that it's reaching more people 
I feel like I'm trying to complicate people's notion of who a witch is. Um, And so I'm hoping that it can lend some complexity to the kind of public consciousness of what a witch is. So there's the stereotype, right? And there are many stereotypes. I mean, it's hard to choose one, but like, I love the idea that someone could have that stereotype in mind, whether it's like a green skin in like a pointy black hat or like a goth young woman who like is wearing lots of chains and dark makeup, whatever the stereotype is. I love the idea that they could look at my pictures and see a picture like Debbie, who we talked about earlier and be like, whoa, that's not who I thought a witch was. There's a few photographs um, there's one, I'm forgetting her name, but she's just wearing like a floral dress yeah. and she's kneeling. Do you know the picture I'm talking about on a branch or a tree? I think if I'm remembering correctly. And honestly, that picture could be in like a Madewell catalog. She doesn't have signifiers of like, look how witchy I am right. in any way. Yeah. And, you know, I really loved that variety. Yeah. And, and a witch is not one thing, which, mm-hmm. you know, really is my main sort of takeaway with this project. So I'm really trying to impart that to the viewer. So I have to ask, you've been wading in the witchy waters for almost three years now. Has your perspective of yourself as a woman or as an artist, as a witch, has that shifted for you at all? Or do you still keep this all at arm's length? I think when I started out, I had a real question in my mind, like, are these my people? Like, is this my community? Like, is this for me? And I was so curious, but also, of course, there was a personal question in it. And while I have such an appreciation and such an affinity for the word, and I'm so into it, I don't know that I can, I can actually own the word for myself. I've learned so much. And, you know, I joined a, a moon circle really early on and, I think that it's affected how I think about my body and think about the cycles and think about the seasons and have like a new appreciation and connection to that. But the thing that I feel like I don't have is a regular kind of like practice or a thing that I come back to that grounds me or that I'm doing in ritual or in ceremony. And so I guess I love the witch and I have so much affinity for her. I'm not sure that I get to call myself one yet. Okay. I think that's totally fair. I think it's in Margot Adler's book where she says that the day she called herself a witch was the most powerful day of her life. Yes. And it's funny. I always kind of thought of myself one, but I remember being in my 20s and being like, oh, This is a word I'm going to use when I think about myself, but also in public. Like, there is this shift that happens. Honestly, I don't think it's that different from when someone decides, like, I am an artist. I Mm -hmm. am a writer. You know, just the phrase, I am, is such a powerful phrase. And it's such a transforming phrase because you're choosing how to make yourself and how to be in the world. So you don't ever have to call yourself that, Francis. That's fine. (laughs) <laughs> or maybe you will one day and maybe. you'll know and it'll be time. So I'll call you up and let you know. Please let me know. <laughs> Definitely. We can have some champagne. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> That's so great. This is going to sound like a weird pivot, 
but I think it's related to this topic, which is you, Francis, recently became a mother and you wrote this gorgeous and incredibly candid essay for Harper's Bazaar about your experience in labor and your experience giving birth, which for you was not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds pretty brutal, (laughs) pretty (laughs) traumatic. And I really appreciated what you wrote. And I'd love for you to share obviously a little bit more about it, but the ways in which you were not ashamed to share really personal details about your body and about your emotions, <laughs> becoming a mother and having birth most specifically, to me is tied into the witch because so many people who call themselves witches are doing it from a sense of reclamation and trying to stop feeling shame about having this identity. So I know that seems kind of like a broad link, but I wonder if that resonates for you at all. It definitely does. I mean, as part of the inquiry I made into witchcraft, I was exposed to viewpoints from these witches that many of whom are healers in some capacity, but really it was more like, I think in spending three years with these women, something did rub off on me. And when I went through childbirth, a a really traumatic childbirth where I had a a pretty bad injury, as I was trying to process that, I think that some of that shamelessness and bravery, honestly, (laughs) came out. And I, I decided to write this piece because I really didn't want to be quiet about it. I felt like not talking about what happened to me made me feel like it was something to be kept secret and something to hide and something to like keep in the dark. And I really wanted other women who had been through traumatic childbirth or traumatic injury to feel like they too could talk about this. I didn't want it to be taboo. Mm -hmm. I I still don't. I really feel like we need to be talking about this stuff much more openly and publicly. Yes. And you also spoke about how much having a doula was really emotionally helpful for you. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about that book from the 70s, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, which essentially talks about the ways in which like the medical industrial complex was overtaken by men Mm -hmm. and overtaken by, you know, the world of commerce. When it used to be, especially when it comes to childbirth, it used to be women and midwives who were overseeing these processes And how a lot of times we think about midwives and herbalists and healers as kinds of witches, um, both in a positive way and a negative way, depending on who's doing the the naming. Mm -hmm. So it just felt relevant to bring up, given the fact that I think so much about claiming this word witch is also about taking the shadow parts of ourselves and our experiences as women or female-eyed people and bringing them into the light. I think that to me, like after all is said and done, the thing that seems the most concrete about what witchcraft is to me 
it's like a cultivation of an internal power and whether or not that power is used in an internal way, in a way that's reflexive, pointed in towards the self, or if it's pointed outwards in a healing capacity or an activism, it seems to me that witchcraft is about this self-possession, this cultivation of that kind of power. And so I think maybe I'm like talking myself into calling myself a witch here, but I really do. It has, something has rubbed off. And yes, my doulas do. They help me so much through that experience. But I think part of my power as a person is to try and upend expectations and surprise people. I think that's what I want to do. Well, you've done a beautiful job. I am so honored to be part of your photo series. By the time this airs, I think it'll still be up for a little tiny bit while longer. It closes November 24th. It's up at Clamp Art on 29th Street in New York City. Please come and see it. Yes, it's beautiful. And for those of you who can't see it or who have seen it, you should know it's a subsection of the entire series that are up on the walls. There's many, many other photographs that didn't quite make it on the real estate of the gallery walls. So you can see the entire series. Is it on your website? Yeah, just if you look at my website, um, you, you can see the full edit. And also my book is for sale still. Let Virtue Be Your Guide. And it's gorgeous as well. <laughs> and Francis, are you planning on continuing the series or is there a stopping point where you just say all right (laughs) I've been doing a few more I think it's definitely wrapping up but I'm doing a a couple next week actually so yeah I think it's still going for a little bit longer can't wait to see them all right well for those of you who would like to see Francis's work that website is uh, francisfdenny.com and she is on Instagram under Francis F. Denny. (laughs) (laughs) How convenient. Well, Francis F. Denny, thank you so much for being on The Witch Wave. Thank you so much for having me, Pam. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Francis F. Denny for joining me. And be sure to check out her exhibition, Major Arcana, Witches in America, in person at Clamp Art Gallery through November 24th or online at any time. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was also edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really makes a difference, and I'd be so, so, so grateful. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod, and check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. 
I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs> <laughs>